Before I introduce this episode's amazing guest on the Vincast, I'd love to remind you about The Local Drop, a Melbourne-based online wine retailer and personalized sommelier service who have invited me to curate a pack of wines, uh, and I couldn't think of a better theme for uh, that pack than Italian grape varieties in Australia. Uh, If you know anything about me, if you've listened to my podcast or if you've watched any of my YouTube videos, you'd know that I love Italian wines and Italian grape varieties and think they have incredible potential here in Australia. So much so that I actually have been making some of my own wine using Italian varieties. Uh, And I've picked six wines from around Australia, which really do show the potential, not only for um, the the grape varieties uh, suitability to Australian regions, but also uh, as far as styles of wine. So um, wines include um, Prosecco from Trentham Estate, uh, uh, Sangiovese from Fighting Gully Road from Beechworth. uh, And I've even included one of my own wines, my 2017 Nebbiolo from Vino Intrepido Wines. Uh, so if you go to the localdrop.com.au, uh, go to collections, uh, and you'll find the, the uh, Intrepid Wine collections there. Uh, and it is the Italo Aussies pack. Uh, it's at $175, including shipping. Uh, it's incredible value. I think those retail for total. So really, uh, I do encourage you to buy that pack and find out what's so exciting about Italian varieties here in Australia. Uh, Thank you very much, guys, and thank you to The Local Drop for your support of this podcast. On episode 140 of the Vincast, I chat with Paul Donaldson, General Manager of Pegasus Bay Wines and also the new Chairman of Family of Twelve uh, New Zealand Wine Collective. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, I'm very excited to be able to share a new episode of the podcast with you. Uh, as I've mentioned on uh, previous episodes, uh, many times, I'm sure, uh, it, look, it is very difficult to uh, try and find time uh, and to catch up with uh, potential guests to record an episode of the podcast. So I really do appreciate everyone's patience as I try and um, balance uh, home life and work life and uh, and podcast life, I guess, uh, to be able to um, uh, catch up with really interesting people who work in the wine industry. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have been invited recently to uh, a very special um, masterclass on New Zealand Chardonnay and Pinot Noir uh, on behalf of Family of Twelve, which is, uh, if you've heard previous episodes of um, the podcast, you might have heard me talk about Australia's First Families of Wine, um, which is um, a collection of Australian wineries, uh, all family-owned, all um, relatively um, small or small to medium in size. Uh, Family of Twelve is uh, similar um, collective of producers, but in New Zealand, uh, and it's across New Zealand, uh, and some amazing producers, uh, some of whom uh, were pioneers in their respective regions. Uh, and my guest um, represents uh, his family's winery, uh, which indeed was a pioneer 
of uh, of the region, uh, Pegasus Bay Wines, uh, which is based in Canterbury, North Canterbury, uh, on the South Island of New Zealand. Paul Donaldson, who has an MBA, uh, had uh, joined the family business um, more recently, um, and it very much is a family business, as you hear uh, in our chat. Um, but uh, I was really uh, thrilled to catch up with Paul um, just before we sat down and tasted some amazing uh, Kiwi, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir recently. Uh, I hope you do enjoy the episode. Please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in contact with Paul and myself to let us know that you enjoyed it. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Paul, thank you very much for making some time on your uh, you know, whistle-stop tour of Melbourne, uh, yeah, showcasing no uh, some lovely Kiwi wines. Uh, and welcome on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I start every episode of my podcast by asking my guests if they can remember sort of the earliest memories they have of wine or the fir- first interactions that led them onto a path of, uh, of a career in wine. With, uh, being, being from a family, wine business is probably a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents actually planted the first vineyard in modern times in Canterbury. So when I was about five or six, we were out on the weekends in this really cold, crappy part of Christchurch that the vines didn't do well, but they had us, you know, planting grapevines, picking, um, and I didn't really know what it was all about because it just was a sort of kind of annoying thing to have to do on the weekends. Um, but pretty early immersion, I guess, in that case. They they sold that in, when I was about seven or eight and then bought our current site, Pegasus Bay, which was in a much warmer and good grape-growing climate. Um, so I did grow up pretty much planting grapevines, hanging around wineries, um, going overseas with the parents and getting dragged around vineyards and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't a great wine drinker until um, I drank a lot of beer in university. It wasn't until I came back and joined the business 2005 that I started getting more seriously interested in actual wine profiles and flavours and sites and all that kind of stuff. What led your parents to um, have an interest in planting vineyards and, and, and producing wine? Yeah, so my dad was a medical student when he met my mum, who was a nurse, and she gave him a book on wine, and that essentially he got immersed in reading that. It was Hugh Johnson's wine, mm-hmm. um, and that pretty much started a lifelong bug for him, and he bit, went from there to... Sorry? Bit yeah. of a bit of a cliché doctor being interested in wine. Yeah, right? I know, yeah. It's actually one of his sort of gags where he's like, you know, what a surprise, a doctor building a winery but yeah so he went he was spent a while as a wine judge and a wine writer as well um before finally kind of taking the leap to to going something commercial mm-hmm. mm. as far as commercial vineyards planted in new zealand at that point was was there much going on there was a bit we planted in 1985 we put our nursery in 1986 was the first vine so, so further north there was skies and martin were doing stuff you yeah. know for people Cloudy Bay got established then. Yep, Newdorf was already in. I think they planted in the 80s. Actually, where we planted up in North Canterbury, there was two other vineyards, one planted in the very late 70s. Okay. But they were all contracts sending stuff up to Marlborough. So there was a bit going on in Marlborough and further north. Right. But, yeah, it was pretty uncharted territory for, for around Christchurch. So there wasn't a, 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 a whole uh, wealth of, of accumulated knowledge and, and, and tradition yet. They were still um, very much pioneering. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, Dad had visited a lot of overseas wineries and had done the WSET diploma and, and various technical stuff, but in terms of actual... And he'd, he'd cut his teeth hand making the wine for this little hobby vineyard that he had with friends in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. Um, 
but as far as people knowing what they were doing in Christchurch, yeah, it was pretty, still pretty limited, probably in New Zealand as well. Is that where your parents are from? Yeah, well, my dad actually grew up down in Dunedin, but I've lived in Christchurch my whole, you know, I was born in Christchurch and they've lived there for, yeah, the last 50 odd years. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, and so was there particular interest in, in establishing something close to Christchurch or? Well, yeah, I think they wanted something that was close enough that dad could still work in Christchurch. Yep. Um, and they did a lot of tests. So, I mean, like, like the Mornington Peninsula, Yarra Valley outside of Melbourne, so he could still work as a, as a doctor and, and do the wine. Yeah, thing exactly. And, and very luckily, time. North Canterbury has a particular microclimate. There's a range of hills, um, that block off the easterly wind. So, up in that little spot in the White Prevalley and, and other parts of North Canterbury, it's about two to three degrees warmer during the day than it is in the rest of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. So most of the plantings were just around Canterbury, but when we planted up in North Canterbury, um, 98%, I think, of the plantings in Canterbury are now in that area. So that sort of did forge a bit of ground there, and then that's where everyone else has pretty much planted since. Right. And so you were involved in the planting of, of the what became the eventual Yeah, site. we had to take the cuttings, actually. Our whole our original block is all on its own roots because there was no phylloxera in New Zealand at that stage, and everyone kind of said that even if it came, it would be too cold in the South Island. Um, temperature? I didn't really turned out, yeah, well, it turned out not to be. Well, it's not a, yeah, there's phylloxera in the South Island. It's down in central Otago. And yeah. So we have a quarantine on our vineyard because we can't actually... There's a whole block of it that <laughs> is at risk from phylloxera. So. Right, okay. So, yeah, we just took cuttings and stuck them in the ground and let them grow. <laughs> and, and what sort of research did your parents do as far as what varieties to plant? Was it obviously there were, there was a bit going on in New Zealand. So, was yeah. were they kind of looking to some of the other regions to think about what they planted? Well, a little bit. I mean, actually, we've got some random stuff uh, as far south as we are. We've got Cab Franc and Cab Sav and Merlot and Melbeck and stuff that we planted because it was popular at the time. Like, people drank a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon but it's not really an ideal growing condition for it. So mm. I think my parents were largely driven by what they thought was just popular and that they should try and grow it yeah. um, rather than what the region could handle. So we've, we've expanded pretty, out from there. That's pretty consistent with Australia as well. You know, yeah, we're planting yeah. Cabernet and Merlot in the Mornington Peninsula and we just never get enough ripeness. Yeah, and actually the stuff we've got now is so old, we've never pulled it out, that it does actually, it's a bit of hard work, but it does actually get reasonably ripe enough to make a... Make a good wine, but you wouldn't, yeah, there's not a lot of people rushing to plant, you know, Bordeaux reds in our part of the woods. Yeah. I mean, there's still plenty of it being sold around the world, but, uh, I think thankfully it's a, it's a little bit more diverse now. You can get, you know, customers, uh, a little bit more adventurous and trying even yeah. you know, alternative varieties and stuff like that. But Cabernet and, and Merlot and stuff, they're still pretty strong. Yeah. And we've, so what, after that first planting, we expanded out in the stuff that actually did well. So we've got a lot of Pinot and Riesling, which is actually very good growing in that area. Um, maybe a third of our vineyard is Pinot and a third is Riesling and a third is a bit of everything else. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of aromatics and Chardonnay does, and Pinot and Chardonnay do pretty well in the area. So yeah. that's kind of where we've focused more on. Uh, now you are one of, is it four? There's four brothers? of us, yeah. We've got four a ridiculous boys? nine family members working at the winery, if you oh, include sorry. siblings and parents okay. and wives. So um, growing up, were were you all sort of helping out? Did you all kind of go off and forge different kind of ideas about career paths? Yeah, it was only... Many yeah. of you kind of know that you were going to be joining the family business as soon as possible? No, no. It was only my brother Matt, who was the winemaker, who actually went off and specifically went to wine school. He went to Roseworthy in Adelaide, mm-hmm. um, which was where it was at the time. And um, he came back 
with a view of being the winemaker at the winery. Right. The rest of us all went off and did something else for the first like, five or six years, or in my case, more like ten. And um, so, what what was your particular interest? Uh, like, oh, look, as a as as any good wine person does, I got a degree in marine biology. Um, and I started a PhD in seahorse ecology. Wow. <laughs> and then my funding dried up and the government changed the rules around aquaculture, which was what I was looking at, seahorse aquaculture. And so I went into banking, as you do, um, and did three years banking, went overseas, lived in Ireland for a year, lived in the UK for two years, and then came home and thought I'd actually join the family business and did an MBA, ridiculously. Um, so you, okay, so you <laughs> went into the MBA after coming back to join the family business. Yeah, I came back and I joined the family business part-time yeah. and did an MBA and then took over the running of the business once I completed the MBA. Right, okay. <laughs> so um, tell me about some of the, the, the different jobs and experiences and places you lived. Uh, before wine? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and where you you said, you know, back in your uni days, you were more of a beer drinker, but yeah. did you start to drink a bit of wine? Um, not really. I was actually mentioned someone the other day. We used to go down to the dairy by the corner of where we lived in Fulham in London and just buy, they had a big bargain bin of $2, two-pound bottles of wine, and we used to buy those. It was pretty pretty bad stuff, really. Um, it wasn't until late, like maybe the second year that I was in the UK, and I'd already decided to go to home and starting the business that I actually put a bit of effort in and trying slightly different, more interesting stuff. Yeah. And my parents, luckily, they come over to Europe once a year. So we met up with them and they took us around a couple of places in France and we, you know, went to Dijon and went to around Burgundy and had a look around and yeah, you know, that was that was great. So I had a little bit of knowledge going back in on the wine side, but I'd always sort of assumed that the family knowledge was pretty good with wine. Um and that I should probably get more business experience first before I yeah. So since then, I've done the WSCT up to level three, and I you know, learn a lot through osmosis in the winery and in the vineyard. So, yeah, it wasn't probably the – took me probably five years working in the family business to feel like when someone gave me wine blind, I should say what I actually thought I was tasting rather than just kind of guessing what they might have given me, mm. trying to kind of blag my way through it. It does take <laughs> you know, a number of years and experience. Yeah. Um, uh, I was only just uh, out for dinner with my new wife the other night. And, yeah, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and, um, and you know, we were, we were sort of being poured glasses of wine and didn't know what they were, and, uh, and, and she smelt it and said, I think that's Pinot. And then when it turned out to be, in fact, yeah. you know, a, a Burgundy, she was like, oh, that's so good. I can't believe it. like, well, you know, like we've been living together for, yeah. you know, three and a half years or more now. You've, you've been exposed to a lot more wine and better quality wine. So you know, hopefully you gained, gained enough experience to be able to do that. Oh, totally. And it, it took me a while to work out that even if I said the wrong thing, as long as I'd sort of smelt the right descriptors, yeah. that was fine. Like I didn't, you didn't, I sort of felt a bit ashamed at the start. Like, oh, it was a Merlot, but it was a Pinot, but it was a bit of an oddball Pinot that had, you know, black current characters or something so it wasn't a you know getting it wrong wasn't the problem actually not like getting the correct smell and taste yeah, of course. it yep. was the it was you know once you know you're doing that all right it doesn't really matter if you actually pick the wrong right at the end it, it, that, that is something that i was discussing with my most recent guest on the podcast and we we're talking about the fact that it is completely impossible to become totally objective about wine you you, yeah. you are always going to be um, experiences and you perceive things differently based on that. So you know. Oh, totally. That's the 
beauty of wine really is that you can never really be wrong as long as you like it yourself. You know what you like and what you don't, yeah. and you know if you taste something, but well, you've tasted it, but so you, just say it. <laughs> and you can understand sort of why it's good and why someone else might enjoy it, even yeah. if you possibly wouldn't go for that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I think people can get a bit tied up in the absolute slight wine wankery sort of detail of, mm-hmm. you know, trying to pick exactly everything and has that got a touch of bread or it's like, who cares if you like it, if it's got some certain character, then it doesn't matter as long yeah. as you like it. Yeah. <laughs> At what point did your parents start sort of talking to you and your siblings about, you know, who might do what, uh, you know, down yeah, the line well, when, when, <laughs> when everyone possibly joined the business? Yeah, well, it was actually never discussed actually they pretty much i think they always hoped that that might happen but everyone just seemed to join randomly of their own accord and incredibly luckily we all do something completely different that the other family members aren't any good at so there's no kind of sibling rivalry and incredibly luckily the, the business is big enough to accommodate well, your yeah. different roles <coughs> absolutely yeah so i mean matt's an amazing winemaker and the rest of us don't have really any desire to do winemaking right um and Ed's a really good salesperson. He was sort of selling my toys when I was a kid and you'd come, <laughs> come home and all the Lego was gone and he'd be selling Russian fudge down at the mall car park and, you know, and uh, I had some banking background, some business background and Ed and Matt are both pretty crappy with money so it kind of all worked out. My brother Mike's come back just recently and he's he's done a lot of, he's a very social guy and he's done a lot of sales stuff as well so he's sort of taken over our sales role in Christchurch which has worked out really well as well so... At the moment, yeah, it's uh, cross fingers. It's all kind of the next generation will probably stuff it up. But mm. we're all in roles that actually were, by complete random chance, just happened to be available and we actually seem to be okay at them and it all just works. But uh, you, neither of your parents did any kind of formal training about viticulture or winemaking? Uh, Ivan did, yeah. My dad, he, he did a little bit of stuff um, around viticulture and and winemaking. Okay. And he made the first vintage of our wine actually in our garage in Christchurch City, which was the first um, legal winery in the Christchurch City limits at the time. Right. <laughs> Had to have a garage certified um, before, yeah, 1990. That was 91. 92, he made those wines as well. And then my brother Matt came back from wine school and finished that vintage and has done every one since. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but Dad had gone over and done a lot overseas, and and he's obviously yeah done a little bit with his friends beforehand, almost like a garage brewer type mm-hmm. setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are any of these friends have they gone off to, to set up their own wineries? Not really. No, there was one um, Daniel Schuster who was um, they we shared the same um, nursery together. So we took Cardang's plant. He planted another vineyard. He's since actually moved out into a consulting type role but the rest were all I think just like wine drinking friends and doctors that were happy to put a bit of money and a bit of manpower in Mm. Um, but none of them have done anything in the wine industry since yeah right so um, what were the sort of the early days as far as Pegasus Bay um, getting I suppose sort of getting them into the market and and as the New Zealand wine industry started to really take off and and get a lot of press um, both in New Zealand and overseas yeah, I mean, we, as I said, 91 was the first vintage. We were pretty small for years. We actually had a horrible, my parents got me to design the label as a 14-year-old, um, which was a big mistake. So we had this hideous label for the first two years. I'm surprised we got any tractional sales at all. Um, I actually blatantly ripped off the Steve Miliband um, Book of Dreams album cover, which has like a winged Pegasus on it. Um, and I drew it with a felt tip, and I thought that my parents would get it done by a designer, but... 
they just put it straight on the label. Um, and Matt came back from wine school and went, what, that's just hideous, you can't have that. And he got it done so it looked a bit more professional. So it was definitely a rustic start. Pegasus um, Bay is the, is the name. Yeah, the, okay. yeah. And it's also the name of the big bay that goes from Banks Peninsula right yep. up to Kaikoura. Okay, so it's named after So it's that. named after a, yeah, okay. a thing that influences the vineyard, I suppose. Yep. Um, but yeah, we, we, I guess we were very lucky that we established in Christchurch at a time when there weren't too much competition in Christchurch, like in terms of local production. So we've always been very well supported by the Christchurch market, and that allowed us to then get enough funds and, and, and volume build to actually move up into national distribution and then and then foreign distribution. Mm-hmm. So if we'd possibly been in a different part of New Zealand that was had a whole lot more production already ha- occurring, we might have struggled a bit more. But yeah, I think right. we were lucky to be kind of supported by our home market um, early on, probably because there was nothing else local to drink. New Zealand <coughs> cities tend to be pretty parochial as far as their wines. They're like uh, really local wines. Yeah, I think actually other people have struggled in Christchurch locally um, until more recently. So there was a period where... Marlborough took over. We were already established in Christchurch, so that was good. Um, but the other guys coming in probably were up a bit against it because they weren't well known, and there was so much now available from other parts of New Zealand. Yeah. Um, certainly, in the last five to ten years, there's been I mean five years. It's been quite a big sort of probably as it is here, you know, local kind of drive, and people want to try the local stuff and all the food production is, you know. One, there's a local slot on wine lists now. You never used to see wines that had a North Canterbury listing um, in the wine shops and in the in the restaurants, mm-hmm. but that's definitely come on in the last five years. Mm-hmm. I, I know that um, Auckland and Wellington have um, recently uh, dynamic dining scenes. Is Christchurch pretty good? Christchurch is, is okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. We, we probably suffer from – we obviously had the earthquake and that knocked a whole lot of people out, and then there's been a whole lot of people come back, I think – I think we're at 115% of seats pre-earthquake now. Right. Which is a bit crazy. So we're in a kind of a, kind of a knockout phase, I think. There's lots of people putting stuff in and some of it's really amazing and inspiring and some's probably just they've used a whole lot of insurance money and they're, you know, hopeful. Um, right. So I think in another five years, the guys that have done really well will, will still be sitting there and the scene will be pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all there at the moment, but there's probably too much choice almost. Yeah. Um, if you know what I mean. What was it? Was there a particular reason that brought you back to to work for the family business? Um, oh, probably just an inability to get like a job in the real world. Um, we only, obviously, when I was overseas being Kiwis, we only had a two year work visa for the UK, and I was faced with the decision of coming home and finding something to do, or you know, taking the easy route, I suppose, and <laughs> saying I'm putting my hand up to see if I could get into the family business. Right. Um. As it turned out, it's probably the first job I've ever had that I actually like going to work in the morning and um, not just waiting for the weekend. It's it's got a lot going for it, and you know it's so varied. Um, travel and you know we've got a restaurant, so you're always hosting people, and you know it's a very social job. Um, yeah, so I yeah I'm probably ruined for life now. I don't think even if we had some ludicrous money offer and decided to sell, um, not that that's really on the cards, probably none of us would take it because we all would have to then find something else to do and that would be all a bit too painful. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. So what were some of the um, the, the the learning experiences, the, the early challenges for you stepping into um, 
that, that kind of position where you didn't have um, much or any experience yeah. in the wine industry, whether you know, as far as business and, and accounting, finance, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the business side was fine. I really did the MBA just to kind of self-validate that I knew I could do it, but I'd have a bit of paper that showed that I'd so that other people might take you a bit more seriously. The wine side was the challenging part, actually. I mean, coming from my family. I think everyone instantly assumed that I would have some enormous wine knowledge and kind of started talking to me like I was, you would know all about all the different subregions of Burgundy and blah, 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 and I had no clue. Like I remember for the family of 12 getting put on a panel at the Hong Kong International Wine Fair as like a sort of to make comments about these wines and I sort of felt like a bit of a fraud because I'd only been in the business for three or four years and I knew enough to get by but everyone next to me was actually a fully qualified really good winemaker <laughs> it's like uh, so I just have to come up with something to say and yeah it's taken me years to actually I guess get a bit of self-belief that what I'm talking about is actually on a par with potentially other people in my kind of role now mm-hmm. yeah uh, are there many? Like, there'd be a few. I suppose, well, certainly within the family of 12, there'd be um, plenty of family members who are, you know, running the business side of things. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess quite often they don't... Yeah, they're, they're not necessarily the ones they don't who get up put on the panel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and quite often on trips, like, depending on who's there, you know, if there might be three winemakers and they're really onto it and they are either part of the family or they're, or they're an employee of the family, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, finding the right blend but it's not always the actual family member that might come away to do something with the family of 12 yeah okay yeah, we, we do try and pick the right person that'll give the like the the message is the same but so that the actual people trying the wines can get information that's relevant to them mm-hmm. it's good to actually have you know sometimes the winemakers even if they're not say the owner yeah <laughs> yeah right. yeah so um I have interviewed a number of members of uh, Australia's first families of wine. Oh, yep. Uh, and um, you are the second representative of the, the, the 12 families, uh, as far, sorry, the family of 12. Uh, cool. as, as the first was um, from... Um, uh, Michael Brakovich. Is it, is it Doctor? No, it's M.W. He's an M.W., Ma- yeah. Yeah, Michael. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like did, a doctor. <laughs> how did the family of 12 uh, actually get started and, and what was kind of the, the idea behind it? Yeah, so it was actually, I believe, it was I was not even working in the wine industry at that time. It's been 14 years and I've, I've been here 12 or 13. Um, it was Steve Smith from Craigie Range and Richard Ritterford from Palliser Estate decided that, my understanding of it was that they were slightly, there was some concern at the time that the big guys might sort of send New Zealand wine down a, a cheap and cheerful direction rather than a quality focus. Um, and they decided to get together a group of like-minded, family-run businesses to kind of promote you know, high-end quality wine to the world. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, um, the big players have still actually maintained a really high quality rate and it, it hasn't, hasn't really eventuated that it's been a problem. But it has meant that we've made this alliance, which has actually worked really well for us. It's, I, I personally think it's, you know, you get to be associated with some amazing producers from all around the country. Um, and we have managed to, you know, to spread the word of New Zealand wine. I'm not sure overseas lots of people get the full concept of the family of 12, but for me that's almost irrelevant because they still get that there's 12 really good wineries in the room that are all happy to show you their wine and, and talk about each other's wine. Mm-hmm. It's not like, trying to say one is better than the other, everyone's kind of doing it as out of the goodness of their heart, shall we say. 
Um, in the uh, the 12 or 13 years you've um, been involved with the family business, have you had a lot of opportunity to kind of travel and, and see how New Zealand wine's perceived in the market? Yeah, I mean, my brother Edward does most of our straight, you know, sales travelling, um, but I've been very lucky to be able to go on quite a few of the Family of 12 trips and been around the world a few times to see, you know, how, how it's grown. Um, yeah, and by market it's been very interesting to see the changes. Yeah. Uh, and so um, that's something that I think there would be a lot of people in the Australian wine industry who look um, quite enviously at the New Zealand wine industry and, and the fact that there's never really been a time when they haven't been cons- uh, considered a premium, cooler climate <laughs> wine-producing yeah. country. True, and I think that's actually been the only possible way the New Zealand wine industry could survive. The reality of our climate is that we cannot we cannot year in, year out make large volumes so we can never really play the margin, the light, tight margin, high volume game, low price. Um, there's always about every third vintage, you know, the yields are suddenly down 30% and, you know, everyone's kicking, pulling their hair out. And so unless you've got some fat built into your margin in terms of you're a quality producer, so you've, you've crop thinned already and you, you don't need this giant crop to carry a, you know, it's, it's kind of been inevitable. So we have, I think very early on, the pioneers in the industry worked that out and said, gee, if we try and, you know, if we try and crop heavy and, and make cheap wine, it's an unsustainable um, situation for New Zealand growers, essentially. Yeah. It's not that they specifically didn't want to do it. I don't think they could ever do it. Um, and as a consequence, everyone's sort of embraced the fact that we can make really high-quality wine. I mean, I think obviously anywhere in Australia can make high-quality wine. Um, there's so many great examples but you've probably got the climate to also produce quite large volumes if desired. New Zealand simply doesn't have that climate every year. So yeah, right. we've sort of yeah been a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. Luckily, people decided that it was worth still investing in and going down that high-end road because I think we wouldn't have a New Zealand wine industry if we'd actually tried to do it any other way. Yeah, okay. So um, as far as um, stepping into that um, kind of general manager business side of things yeah. um did you find it uh difficult to sort of apply some of your experiences in that area in, in into the kind of the the field of of, of wine wine industry yeah or? i mean it was probably more into the field of a family business like you, you you go to business school and you learn all this stuff that you should be doing this and that and that and then you deal with family members that just do whatever the hell they want anyway because they don't <laughs> you know hard, you have to it's, to it's not like a formal this. structure so you can't just say to someone you do this because i'm your boss yeah when that's also your brother and they probably do actually have a bit more experience than you and so it's been it's been interesting i mean there's certain stuff that they've accepted that yep you probably know way more about forecasting and cash flow and all that kind of stuff so they you know, take the lead on that but it's definitely been a bit of back and forth as to you know what they know i've had to learn a lot off them to actually cobble together a, a system that works for us as a winery that's also a, a family business. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, is it? I, I would assume it would probably be beneficial, the fact that Pegasus Bay has been around for a, a while and um, not necessarily having to chase everything, like, you know, they're, they're sort of... Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, when I first arrived there, my brother was making the wine. No one did any forecast. He just bottled as much as he thought he liked. Um, he didn't worry about what would take a year to sell or so some years Ed would find he had six months worth of product and some years he would have a year and a half's worth of product to work with and my parents didn't really do any costings or know that you know one wine had a higher margin on it than another 
in terms of cost versus what we sold it for. They just, at the end of the year, there was more money in the account than when they started, so they were kind of happy. Um, so there was definitely some basic business stuff that I was able to do straight away, and and I think that that helped everyone go, oh, okay, cool, he does at least know what he's talking about. Um, but it's such a unique situation. You know, it's the wine industry is this crazy, capital heavy, long. Like you're trying to work out. We bottle age all our stuff, so I'm trying to work out how much 2017 Pinot to put into bottle now. But we're selling our 15. Yeah, right. And so you're kind of shaking your crystal ball and saying, in a year and a half time, I think we'll need X. <laughs> um, so you've got to be quite adaptive and quite fluid with how you. I found I couldn't really get too hung up on stuff because. Those long lead times do mean you've got time to adjust if you've done it wrong as well, which is kind of handy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens more more times than not. Um, so how long were your parents still working before they kind of were full-time with Pegasus Bay? Oh, look, it was crazy, actually. My dad retired. He was the head of neurology at Christchurch Hospital. He probably only retired 15 years ago. He's 77 now. Um so he would have only been just past 60, but that was the whole reason we were actually able to to survive and because it takes you about 10 years to make your first sort of money back by the time you've bought a property, grafted, got ordered some vines or planted them, waited three years to get any fruit, put it in a make – make a wine, that's another year, year and a half if it's, you know, put it in a bottle and then actually try and sell it. <laughs> um, so he actually worked incredibly hard. He had a full-time job and – as, as a doctor and then he ran a private practice three hours a night after work till eight o'clock at night and then he worked all day Saturday on his private practice so we kind of saw him on Sundays and that was generally dragging us out to the vineyard to do something so yeah. so it wasn't that was yeah time. so it was pretty he worked incredibly hard to get it established um in terms of making money to be able to do it and my mum worked very hard actually doing stuff on site getting stuff working um so yeah, they they kind of now are sort of pseudo part timers that come out and look around. And Dad oversees some viticultural stuff, but he he likes just doing what he can, what he finds fun, rather than having to do all the other stuff. And my mum essentially does the gardening, which is what she really loves doing. So yeah, right. She used to kind of run the business, and now she drives around on a ride on lawnmower, mowing the lawns and <laughs> stuff, you know, planting things and having a great time. Were either um were either of them uh, much handed in the kitchen? Uh, yeah, mum was mum was occasionally helped out in the kitchen, but my brother Ed trained as a chef from high school, so he actually ran our restaurant for the first couple of years as the chef. And on his days off, he was going into Christchurch and showing wine to people, trying to get wine listings. It was pretty wow, pretty full on. Um, so yeah, and then yeah, we've managed to to bring that restaurant up to the more the ideal vision standard we had at the start. You know, I think we. It's a it's a high end restaurant now, but we started with plastic tables down in the middle of our barrel hall while my brother was gunning the LPG forklift onto the customers trying to move stuff around, and he <laughs> called it ambiance. And <laughs> we were like, "No, don't do that." Um, so, uh, as far as wine tourism, uh, uh, are there many wineries in in the, the region, and does that bring quite a bit of uh, tourism business out? Yeah, there's a bit. I mean, we. We are close enough to Christchurch to get like busy weekends where people actually come out because it's only a forty minute drive. Yeah. Um, and during the weekdays, there's there's a lot of travellers heading north or south that that stop in. Um, by many accounts, I guess because there's no real accommodation in the area because it's so close to Christchurch, we don't get nighttime stuff. There's not a lot happening after five o'clock, so it's very daytime focused. Sure. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots of like we get a lot of international visitors. There's 
five or six kind of key cellar doors, I think, in the region, but more and more people are opening up, you know, cellar door experiences for people. That's And we've, we've got, you know, other stuff in North Canterbury. People are heading up to Kaikoura to see whales and they're going to Hanma to sit in the hot pools. And so it's, it's becoming quite a destination region slowly but surely, I think. Lots of natural beauty, that kind of thing. Yeah, lovely. Of course. You know, it's New Zealand. It's amazing. <laughs> Haven't you not seen Lord of the Rings? <laughs> you, you, you honestly, you took the words right out of my mouth. I have, I have actually seen Lord of the Rings, of course. Of course, sure. Um, and, uh, and so you are here today in Melbourne to, with a number of other members or... Um, yeah, representatives. Representatives, thank you, of, um, of the family of 12. Um, what, what are you kind of excited to be talking about both from Pegasus Bay's perspective and, and what, the, what the group is sort yeah. of doing at the moment? Well, one of the things I really like about the tasting we've got going today is that across the spread of the 12 wineries, there's someone from pretty much every key region, so you get wines from Auckland right down to central Otago to try, and we're showing stuff that everyone does, so everyone in our group makes a Pinot and everyone makes a Chardonnay, they're the only two wine varieties that everyone does, so you do get to a really good regionality sense, so the Pinots are available as you know a central Otago up to sort of Martinborough, and then there's Chardonnays from Auckland, you know, right down to to sort of Marlborough area to try a Nelson as well. So it does give you a very good over snapshot over six wines from six, uh, from, well, six, six Pinots and six Chardonnays from 12 very well thought of, I think, producers from New Zealand, but also well enough spread that you can try something from each region and, and work out, you know, what, what the style is that comes out of that region, what the Tawar is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and have you just done the same sort of thing in Sydney? We just did this yesterday in Sydney, yeah. So. And how was, how was the reception? Yeah, good. Very good. Yeah. I enjoyed the cold beer afterwards as well. <laughs> but, um, as no, as, it was, it was as good. As we as had as a as full room and, and people, yeah, people was, was, took a while, you know, as it does of these things to get people to actually start talking about it. But sure. almost afterwards, people hung around for quite a while to ask questions and to, and, and talk about the wine. So. I think everyone likes to sit there and get through the tasting and then actually ask you questions afterwards. <laughs> now, and probably an important question, uh, how far away are we from um, the next generation kind of wanting to start getting involved with the wine business? Yeah, I mean, across the family it's all different. So at Pegasus Bay, obviously my our oldest, my kids are you know 12 down and I, my brother's got one 15 or 16-year-old Um so we're kind of already in second generation phase and it'll be a good sort of 10 years before third generation maybe want to get interested. Um, Newdorf have just got, um, their daughter Rosie has, has joined the business. So they're, they're kind of just moving into that second generation phase now. Mm-hmm. Some of the other ones are more still in the first generation phase and they're probably coming up quickly to, you know, I mean, things like Kumi River, they're almost probably third generation just about now, you know, cause they had some and, and Villa as well. So we're kind of, yeah. There's a few that are maybe still in the first gen stage and they're probably considering their options. But I'd say for most of us, we seem to have successfully netted a few of the family members in to, the, to do the dirty work for the next kind of 10 or 15 years and then we'll, we'll see where we go from there. 
Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm really excited. Um, um, obviously, thank you very much for inviting me today to, um, no to be a, a look at all these wines. And, and I do appreciate you um, finding some time to sit down and have a chat and tell us more about yourself and about Pegasus Bay. Would you like to share with people um, website addresses, social media accounts, if you'd like them to follow you on Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, actually, the key one probably is that there's the Family of 12 have a website, which is familyof12.co.nz, and there's a link. Oh, that's like a portal. So all the 12 wineries have their click click through links to go to each winery's website. Yep. Um, we've got the same Pegasus Bay wine handle for Facebook, Twitter, you know, Instagram. Um, well, Instagram's probably the only fun one. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people checking Twitter these days, but yeah, and, and we have a, there's social media accounts posted for everyone on that Family of 12 website, so anyone that actually wants information about each of the individual wineries, that website's quite a good portal to to find out who's there and and click through to anyone else's page. Great. Well, uh, like I said, I'm looking forward to, to tasting some wines, and thank you very much for being on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can find me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. You can find the podcast on Twitter, at The Vincast. You can find uh, my wine brand, Vino Intrepido, on Instagram and Facebook. And I've also started a, a Facebook page for The Vincast specifically with a, a fan um, kind of group where you can chat about... Uh, the guests, your favorite episodes, the recent episode. Uh, so please do like the uh, all those uh, pages and, and, and accounts. Um, you can find my YouTube channel at Intrepid Wino. Uh, lots of different videos there, uh, lots of Let's Taste videos, uh, and also my videos chronicling my winemaking uh, endeavors in the first two vintages. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, like some videos, share them on social media, leave some comments. I love hearing from you. Uh, you can find the podcast on any number of different uh, platforms, uh, iTunes, the Podcasts app, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, iHeartRadio, uh, Spotify. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when a new episode is available uh, and you can also access the full back catalogue uh, of 140 plus episodes. Um, and uh, please do leave a five-star rating and a review. Uh, it is really, really um, beneficial for me to get some feedback, but also uh, it helps get the podcast out to a bigger audience. Uh, as always, that information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com, uh, including lots of different writing I've done in the past. But guys, until next time, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.